My worst fear is not dying in a cycling accident. My worst fear is killing a cyclist as a driver. And so I can't imagine why anyone on this peninsula or in PV estates would be opposed to education and signage. It feels really good to have come into this tour basically bored by someone and then to have been proven so completely and utterly wrong. Line the podcast on two wheels, rolling grand tour style. Uh, we have the cassoulet of shows lined up with various meats, beans, and veg in a pot capped with a pastry. Training food, in my book. The pace line supported by fatcyclist.com and its team leader, Fatty, is here. What does cassoulet mean? I have no idea what that word even what, is. What what is cassoulet? Yes. Cassoulet is one of the quintessential. Yeah, one of the quintessential French dishes. It is a one-pot wonder of wonders when it comes to French cooking. You basically have this big uh, ceramic pot. It's lined with a pastry. You fill it with sausage and other meats. So it's a um, pie. It's a not a pie. It's, it's a, a meat it's pie. More, it's more of a stew, <laughs> and it's a classic in French cooking. So For, it's a bread bowl. It's not a bread bowl. It so is a not a chicken pot, pot, pot pie. It's a chicken no, pot pie. Patrick, Patrick, you know better than that. You know much better than that because you've been to the French countryside. Patrick Brady with Red Kite Prayer, uh, not a chef, but a heck of a good writer. Patrick, how are you? <laughs> the, the world's least ambitious cook questions French cuisine. Oh, right. this is going to be a good one. Sorry. Right. <laughs> cassoulet. That's your new word for the day, guys. Cassoulet. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, France, Tour de France, big race going on, kind of. Um, here's a little question, actually, first. Uh, who do you think has more Twitter followers, guys? Chris Froome or Peter Sagan? Oh, wow. What a great question. I'm I would guess Sagan. Froome. <clears throat> oh, good. I bet one of us is right. <laughs> you are, yeah. One of you is right. And Froomey has more than a million followers. And that more than doubles... Sagan's Twitter account. Now, maybe English has something to do with that, but indeed, Chris Froome has many more Twitter followers than Peter Sagan. Big deal, right? Yeah, kind of big deal. But it gets us to our first topic here. I bring this up because I sense something actually is, is happening with Froome. For a while, he, he for a long time, that is, he's been a respected as a, as a racer. But it sure feels like during this tour in particular, he's becoming... A bona fide star, a fan favorite, someone we can all pull for, maybe root for. Oh, yeah. He's winning races, but it feels like he's winning the hearts and minds. Oh, you of had to. You just race had fans. to use that one. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I personally explicitly came to this uh, tour rooting against Froome and for Quintana. So imagine where the the events that had to occur for me to have completely flip-flopped on that. Um, it's, you know, Quintana racing by committee and Froome racing with his head and heart and lungs. Yeah, I, I, I tweeted something to this effect saying, I, I love this guy all of a sudden. How did that happen? But yeah, I'm, I'm going to own it 100%. I think Froome is... Uh, you know, he's no longer just a, an amazing human specimen. He is a crazy good, uh, lovable racer. And so, yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan all of a sudden. So you genuinely like the guy? Heck yeah. <laughs> I, I think I just used the word love. I, I It a little, slipped out, but, you know, it's oh, I'm going to go ahead crush. and stick with it. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Total man crush. <laughs> Patrick Brady, a man who studied uh, the history of racing for a long time and certainly has a depth of knowledge of, of the various personalities who have embodied the Tour de France and Grand, uh, Grand Tour races. What, 
What's your take on Froome, the man, the personality? Is is he become a, becoming a likable guy, a fan favorite? Well, here's the thing. In reading interviews with him in the past, I always found him to be an immensely sympathetic person. You know, mm-hmm. he understood how difficult it was to try to convey that he was racing clean, clean, or at least was claiming to race clean. Um, you know, he understood that he was saying all the same things as Armstrong, but wanted to try to convince us that he was different. And um, his awareness of the bigger picture and of suspicion, you know, placed him in a really difficult position. But his willingness to show some vulnerability and talk openly about that made him, as I said, immensely sympathetic. Off the bike, I kind of love the guy like Eldon. But on the bike, he is perhaps the most ungainly person ever to, to well, win a Grand Tour. I, I keep calling him a spider on a paperclip. It's watching him race, um, just physically pedal a bike, still not my favorite thing. But the dude attacked going downhill. Oh my gosh, what a breath of fresh air. After last year, some of our own American riders were complaining about racing downhill, that you're not supposed to race downhill. You're supposed to take the descents easy. And I wanted to smack a certain uh, Cannondale rider for that last year. Um, To see him uh, attack on the flat, attack going down, uh, he's a much more exciting racer than he ever was previously. And let's also uh, acknowledge that, you know, waiting for uh, Quintana to finally respond has resulted in an internet meme of a corpse uh, or just a skeleton sitting on a couch with the the legend waiting for Quintana uh, to attack. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Froome has brought the race to everyone else, uh, much the way mm-hmm. uh, Nibali did a couple of years ago. Um, what's really kind of curious to me is the way uh, Froome's arc of popularity is so different from Miguel Indurain's and Lance Armstrong's. The first year that those guys won, they were instantly beloved. And the first year Froome won, unless you were English, there was a chance that you weren't really that in love with him. And now this is his third victory. By, uh, by Indurain's fourth victory, I was bored with the guy because he never spoke. Um, so I wonder what it's going to be like next year when he comes back as Mm -hmm. the very likely victor of this year's race. Yeah. Right. What I think coming, go ahead, Fatty. I I was going to say what I am taking away from the tour so far is that other teams have learned the wrong lessons from sky. (laughs) Other teams. (laughs) Capitulate. Well, they, no, they looked at sky's performance and the lesson they took away was, be cautious in how you race. Uh, always wait and be careful in how you attack or whether you attack or when you attack. Go late. The lesson they should have taken away, which Froome is you know, hitting them over the head with now, is be smart in how you race. Sometimes caution is the smart move, but sometimes a crazy attack from out of left field is a smart move. And then I would say this, the next lesson, which I think comes more from when he started running up the, up the hill, and you know people were laughing at him and making fun of, it, of him for that. But the fact is, he was so deep into the single-minded focus of get to the finish line. I mean, that just, to me, that just says, here is a guy who at all costs just needs to, you know, is deeply immersed in the race. Right. They need uh, to coming that is the main lesson that people need to learn from Froome. Th- race with your heart, race with your head, race with your spirit, race with everything you got. That's what he's doing and yeah, that's why I'm like that's why I'm emerging as a super uh, super fanboy for Froome. Right. Coming into this race, we had uh, a defending champion who was known to be data-driven, calculating, kind of unemotional, play the waiting game. And then suddenly on stage eight, we get this daring descent. Then we had the bridge to Sagan as he dashed away from his rivals into Montpellier. And then of course that the run 
<laughs> the the foot chase to stay in yellow up Mont Lawn two, which even though the rules say you're not supposed to do that, I think I think for for most of us we're going well. Yeah, what else are you going to do? You're going to just try and save, preserve your position in the most important race in the world. And we saw a guy just acting acting out his emotions and almost his panic in that state, and that was real. Mm-hmm. Unlike the, the the robot, the spider on two wheels that that we that we'd known coming into the 2016 Tour de France. And remember last year, last tour, the same guy was having to answer doping allegations. He had urine thrown at him. He was spit on. The year before, he crashed out of the tour and didn't even come close to defending his title. I heard some people cheering that fact. Good, he's out. Forget him. Let's get rid of him. Uh, last year, in fact, here's what, here's what one associate professor on health cycling history and culture wrote about Chris Froome. This is last year. He said Froome's writing style is unappealing and the broadcast vision of his uh, of it that is distracts us from seeing the strength and superior fitness he's able to unleash on the writers around him. We see Froome as machine, not human. That sounds kind of dated now, don't it? Doesn't it? Based on what we've seen in at least three pretty dramatic stages where Chris Froome has just kind of let it all hang out and done what I think most people would do and in a situation like that. Yeah. I, I'm going to say that it bothers me when people make light of his writing style. He's tall. He's very thin. Sure. You know, some people might say he's ungainly. Anytime I've ever seen myself on, you know, a video of myself on a bike, I cringe. We all have this picture of our personal selves looking great on a bike Holy Moses, if you ever, I mean, if you ever want a lesson in humility, and I would say this is true for 98% of the writers, have someone take a video of you riding up a hill. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. it's just humiliating. Yeah, just look over <laughs> at your reflection going by a window sometime. You'll go, oh, I don't look as cool as I thought I did. Uh-huh. Maybe Chris Froome doesn't look so bad. Yeah. And of course, we have the, the public image of Froome off the bike, um, especially in interviews afterwards. Um, I think we have a different guy as well. I, I found a 2008, you know, quick post. This is post comments after a stage at the tour when he was with Barlow World. Here's here's Chris Froome back in 2008. See if you can notice the difference here. I didn't actually expect to be, be up there today. I, I thought I'd try and help as much as I could, but but honestly, I didn't really expect to be up there. So I'm, I'm happy I... I was able to stick around for a bit longer today. And you had a great position in that bunch to really evaluate the big GC names. Who do you think looks strong? And, and first of all, tell us about Cadell. Did you ride alongside him? What sort of stakes he in? Um, I've, I've seen Cadell obviously in the bunch over the last few days, and he's he's looking really strong to me. He's he's looking uh, sort of race favourite, but um, this is a tour. Anything could happen. Anything can change the race in a matter of minutes, and um, I think every day is going to be different. And for a little audio comparison, same guy, 2016 edition, following his descent that put him in yellow this year at the tour. <laughs> Bit of fun, really. It was. Uh, I thought I'd give it a try. I had one of one or two little goes on the climb, and nothing really uh, that, that that was sticking. So I thought over the top. Let me just give it a go and and see what I can do on the descent. Uh, see if I can catch someone out. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I spent a little bit too much. Let's, let's see. I guess tomorrow's going to be a really hard day. Um, so 20 seconds, more or less. That's, it's, it's not a huge margin. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'll take every second I can get at this point. So same guy, still kind of reserved on Mike, I would say. But on the bike, he, this is a different deal, a different guy. Patrick, what do you think of his, of his public image, of his ability just to speak and to, to express himself? It sounds like a guy that's evolved even in, in the last couple of years. Certainly. And I think, you know, a, a certain measure of modesty serves him well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, modesty is a great way to be cagey with your competitors. Um, I mean, really, there, there's only, there are only two ways you can go uh, and still have the public, you know, uh, appreciate, enjoy, uh, like, respect you. You know, one is to be the classic uh, champion, and we're getting plenty of our fill of that with a, a certain orange Oompa Loompa. Um, and the the alternative is to be. Are you talking about me? Uh, no, no. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Please continue. Well, you know, but the alternative is just what Froome is doing. You know, which is being. 
um, you know, more modest in his assertion, you know, and I mean, I, I appreciate that because you never really know what's going to happen, you know, and so saying, I thought I'd give it a go, you know, uh, I wanted to see how it would play out, that sort of thing. Um, to me, that reflects an understanding of, you know, just, just how surprising reality can be. Fatty, you do an hour-long uh, Fatty Cast interview. If you had a chance at Chris Froome, do you think you could engage him in an hour-long Q&A that would be interesting to listen to? I 1,000% guarantee we would have a fantastic hour conversation. Uh, he's, to me, he seems like a, a really easy-to-listen-to, easy-to-talk-to guy. Um, and I'm, I, I'm starting to worry that I'm coming off as like ridiculous level fanboy. Um, you know, and I've done that before <laughs> and I need to be careful, I think. Um, the, but that said, um, it feels really good to have come into this tour basically bored by someone and then to have been proven so completely and utterly wrong. I love right. that. I love being shown that I am wrong like that to be surprised in a really great way by someone that I would ha uh, never suspected had any surprises at all in him. Mm -hmm. So let's go around one more time. Fatty, you're down for being a Froome fan. Yeah. Sign me up. Okay. Send, Patrick me, Brady? send me the t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a different writer now. He was, you know, he was kind of uh, so defensive in his racing previously that it was last man standing. You know, now he's taking the race to everybody else. He, he deserves to be loved for that. Yeah. And Michael Houghton, um, I'm still a bit on the fence, but mm. uh, becoming a Froome fan, certainly I, I've always respected his abilities and loved what he's done uh, this year in the tour to at least try and animate things, make it an entertaining event. He's probably going to, well, we don't know what's going to happen in the Alps. Uh, we're recording this just as we're entering the Alpine stages. But um, I've certainly... Uh, grown to like him more and um, enjoy actually hearing from him after the race, uh, what he has to say. I think his his words are still a bit careful, but uh, offer some insight. I always like that. I like, And there seems to be something going on between him and Sagan, which I think is great for Froome. They seem to be buds on a certain level. Like Sagan will always come up to him post-stage if, if Froome is being interviewed and give him a little jab or pick him up. or So there's something, I think, good for Froome going on there. Sagan can do what he wants. I think he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a Teflon boy at this point. He seems to be able to pinch the butts of podium girls and get away with it. So, but Froome has still, I think working on that image thing, making himself more accessible, more likable to the to general public. He can, does have a massive Twitter following, but I think there's more to do there. <laughs> can we, uh, talk about the flip side of this? Uh, for sure. me, I, I came into this really looking forward to being a Quintana fan and I'm finding that I, it, you know, I essentially have nothing to be a fan of what is going on there. Is I mean, he still in the race? Be, well, I mean, that's such a great question, but I mean, where, where is Nibali? Where is Quintana? Where are the, I mean, I didn't expect to be a Nibali fan, but Quintana, I mean, I was really stoked to watch him. I was rooting for that guy to, win it all and instead i'm like he he is the person i'm thinking of when i said there are people who have learned the wrong lessons from previous races uh you know watching Froome. And that he's you know he is racing as if a committee is making decisions as to what he ought to do at any given moment why I, well Quintana's strategy patrick uh yeah. as i understand is that is to you know limit his losses through the first two weeks of the tour, wait for the final climbs, the final big mountain stages, and then try to make up his deficit and, or cover his deficit and then some during those final stages. For Nibali, Nibali raced the Giro um, and is stated that he's there in the tour only to win stages and to ride for a Roux. So that's, I mean, Nibali is kind of out of the picture as a GC contender at this year's tour. Yeah, well... I mean, what you just said about Quintana makes me super stoked to watch him for the rest of the tour. Just kidding. I'm, I'm just hoping he shows up to the race at some point. Yeah. It doesn't seem like so much to ask. There's an image thing there, too, with Quintana. I mean, he, here's a guy, you know, hides behind the sunglasses a lot, doesn't show us a lot of emotion. Um, 
English obviously is is an issue here with him. You know, he's got a language barrier. I assume he only speaks the one language. I don't know if he has any French in him. So it makes it very difficult for him to get his message out and to people can root for a guy when they see him on the bike and see what he can do on the bike, and that goes a long ways. But I think there's there's more to it than that. It's the character. You have to be for the character too. You have to be into the guy. Well, okay. I under- does, his, does his story sell with you? Well, I understand what you're saying, but I knew all of those things, and you know, before the race started, and had already, you know, knew enough about him and have watched him enough. He has not always raced the way he is racing this year. Yeah, he he raced with dare I say, panache in his previous, in his previous racings and has, you know, and had made me align myself with him that this is a guy who has intensity and a love of this race and the willingness to hang himself out there. And I'm seeing from Quintana what I expected to see from Froome. And I don't understand why I just, you know, I, I, I understand the, the being cautious and you know keeping your powder dry and all of that but for crying out loud that's that's not the way to that's not the way to bring me on board at least not that that's right. his objective but i mean i'm just saying yeah okay well we'll still pull for Quintana. let's let's just hope for competition in the end that's all we want to see guys challenge each other i mean ultimately that's yes. what we want out of the tour just we don't be want sure to wake show. me when he finally attacks <laughs> we'll set the alarm clock yeah <laughs> uh coming up guys signage and single track two issues near and dear to our hearts safety and access that is next on the pace line uh, everyone's everyone's thoughts here uh, with those affected down in Nice, it's it's a special place for me also, uh, close to where I'm based. And I, I just can't imagine uh, what those people are going through down there. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fatty of FatCyclist.com and Patrick Brady of RedKitePrayer.com. I'm Michael Houghton, your host. Guys, 21 states have three-foot laws, and one, Pennsylvania, has a four-foot law. Pretty amazing. Uh, that's terrific. Or is it? What no, it's good terrific. Is a law? It's terrific. Okay. But what good is a law if it is not in force? Ah. Well, when I checked on the uh, one-year anniversary of California's three-foot law, I found that the CHP had written fewer than a dozen tickets where a motorist failed to give a cyclist three feet during a pass. The problem here is, I think, pretty obvious. The damn thing is just hard to enforce. Basically, a cop has to witness a close call. Hmm. Then, even if he or she writes a ticket, the cop may be challenged in court with the driver saying, well, it seemed like three feet to me, Your Honor, and the officer wasn't carrying a tape measure, so I would ask that you dismiss this ticket. Well, sure. Go, you know, GoPros and street cam. What's that? Go ahead, Patrick. I'm sorry. I, I am, just, I, am I off base there? Well, no, not really. But I think it's worth noting that, you know, when the law was passed, um, you know, in, in the press conference for it, they said full on that, you know, this again, this is just California, not elsewhere. But this was said to be a law that was not going to be actively enforced on its own, that it would only be used as an additional measure to throw at people when there was a, a car, bicycle, of course they called it accident, but crash. Um, so there was never really an open intent to go around enforcing this thing uh, on its own. You know, seeing somebody buzz a, a, a cyclist uh, and then pull them over. That was just never the intent. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, saying there have been fewer than a dozen tickets, I'm just not surprised. As it is, it's hard to get the police to fully investigate uh, a crash with a bicycle. So getting them to add this measure on top of something else, you know, not something I was ever super hopeful for, but at least it's out there and it can be used as a means of education. 
And GoPros and street cams could maybe help with, you know, this enforcement situation. There is a police department in Chattanooga that's experimenting with ultrasonic technology mounted on police bikes that'll help measure the distance between car and bike. But for now, this is, you know, pretty much a judgment call if you're looking for enforcement, which is why advocates have been pursuing and some cities have been installing three-foot law signs and billboard campaigns have been going up you know, uh, reminding people of the three-foot law. And they are, of course, adding to to those three-foot law signs, share the road messages, and bicycles may use the full lane postings. Instead of trying to enforce these laws, just reminding drivers of the law is what they're, what many cities and advocates are pursuing in this case. Which gets me um, to a city council meeting in Palos Verdes Estates. It's a small city south of LA, um, LAX, with some of the prettiest riding in the county uh, of Los Angeles. Now, Palos Verdes Estates is part of a geographic area known as the Palos Verdes Peninsula, or PV, to locals. It's a bedroom community, but a, a beautiful place to ride with a nice mix of climbing, rollers, spectacular ocean views. Uh, but in this area, within the last year, there have been three cyclists killed in vehicle versus bike crashes. The incidents have captured not only the attention of riders in the immediate area, but the SoCal cycling community as a whole. And of course, the Palos Verdes Estates City Council. The council will soon be asked to approve signage. First, they're going to be asked to approve a set of three-foot signs, those reminding motorists of the law that they must give three feet to cyclists. And later on, there's a proposal that signs be posted advising motorists that cyclists may use the full lane. Now, I went to the council meeting the other night. Uh, it was packed with all with cyclists. I mean, there was just nothing but cyclists there. Hardly a resident showed up um, that was not talking about the, the signage issue. Obviously, this is a very emotional issue for local riders. And those feelings were led by Michael Barklaw, the Big Orange cycling team. I'm here for my 12-year-old daughter. I wanted to take my kid out for a ride on Sunday. My wife wouldn't let her go with me because she was afraid that, like my friends, she would get hit. I have lost three friends on this hill. The reason you have these fine folks here is they don't want to lose any more. My daughter is 12 years old. She wants to ride her bike with her father, and her family won't let her. That's not right. We look forward to working with members of the local community. We want to work together to find solutions. But at the end of the day, we want to be safe. How will I know that we've done the right thing? When my wife allows my daughter to go on a bike ride with me, that's all I want. So emotion, a big part of this issue down there, especially considering the three deaths in a very small geographic area. But so is logic. Uh, The council heard from bike advocate Eric Bruins, who used to be with the LA Bike Coalition and now works with individual cities on how to create a better biking environment. When the city really embraces their role as the authority figure to actually educate folks, like this is actually what the expectations are for you when you're riding your bike in the city and when you're driving in the city. That's really when you're starting to have a a common place of understanding for folks to truly start getting along. Because what's happening right now is the conflict comes from different expectations. Is there uh, there is a minority of drivers that that believe the expectation is that bicyclists need to stay out of the way and they are, you know, enforcing that effectively as vigilantes. And so um, basically when the city puts that sign on, on, on the side of the road that says actually know that they belong here, um, that sets a common set of expectations among cyclists and drivers. And that common expectation really is the foundation for predictable, predictable behavior and for safety on the road. It should be said about uh, the community that it does get a great number of riders, including weekend group rides, that can get quite large. The chief of police, who is uh, for the signs in this case, does pull over cyclists on occasion, and there's no doubt that the chief hears it from some residents, that riders do not obey the law, that they ride side by side, that they are unpredictable. But none of that, of course, is an excuse for using a car in a dangerous manner to send a message 
that you are unhappy with careless riders. Patrick, you know this area. You've ridden it before. Yep. Um, it can be congested with cyclists. Uh, not a lot of room for bike lanes to be installed. But uh, when you have this, these types of incidents where either there have been brushes or assaults with cars or deaths, I mean, government has to step in and do something here, don't they? <laughs> government has to step in. Um, I mean, in a, a properly orderly world uh, where civilization is our common goal, then yes. Um, but, you know, people act like this is the first big push uh, of bicycle advocacy uh, in the PV Peninsula, and it's not. You know, circa 2005, 2006, 10, 11 years ago, uh, we were meeting with the PVE City Council um, and uh, the rolling, uh, let's see, the Rancho Palos Verdes City Council and the California Highway Patrol uh, regarding enforcement of the donut ride and uh, some of the things that were uh, happening with drivers against cyclists there. And the thing that became immensely clear was that in every instance, each one of those bodies, not just Palos Verdes Estates, but also Rancho Palos Verdes and the California Highway Patrol, they were all absolutely hostile to cyclists. Their mere presence was an affront to them. Um, and it was clear that we just weren't going to make any headway with them whatsoever. That's why I and others who met with them back then just stopped. It's like, well, we're just going to keep riding then. Uh, if you're not going to listen to us, if you're not going to treat us uh, like we're actual adults who are intelligent, you know, then we're just going to keep doing what we do. Uh, it's worth noting that, you know, I believe it's the Justice Department is currently investigating uh, the non-enforcement uh, of normal assault and uh, other ordinances in Palos Verdes Estates committed by the Lunata Bay Boys, uh, a surfing gang there. Um, Lunata Bay is just notorious uh, for awful behavior by the locals uh, against any visiting surfers. And, uh, you know, there's, there's video of uh, uh, one of the uh, PVE uh, employees saying, well, you know, it's kind of a message just to stay out. You know, it is what it is. Uh, boys will be boys, that sort of thing. And so, it, you know, of, of the many places I've traveled in the U.S., I can say I've not encountered another community more xenophobic, even to people from right next door, uh, than Palos Verdes Estates. Wow. Uh, Fatty, Utah has a three-foot law. What indication are you given of its existence? Does this come up at all, whether it be signage or enforcement, or is there an understanding about it? Tell me about the impressions of the three-foot law in Utah. You know, I, I think it's pretty common for me to get buzzed by someone who is making, you know, who is making what they feel like is a point. I don't think my experience is different here in Utah than it is anywhere else. Uh, I'm lucky in that I live in a small town and as a small town writer, people are generally perhaps a little bit more mellow. Um, there's, uh, there's a strong likelihood that if, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, that when a driver goes by you, that you've met that this person's your neighbor. And, uh, so I think there's perhaps a little bit more care and caution, uh, at least riding nearby. Um, that said, I've lost friends. I don't know any cyclists who haven't. Um, and it's just, you know, it continues to be a little bit scary. I would say, um, as I, as I encourage my own kids to start riding, that I push them toward mountain biking because of the whole road bike issue. And I know that a lot of people, when they talk to uh, the Nike honcho, Austin McInerney, and I just pronounced his name wrong on purpose, <laughs> uh, Austin McInerney. Um, uh, I like to put an L in there. Anyway, when they talk to him about, hey, why isn't there a road version of Nike? It's for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. They can't, with any confidence, say that they're going to keep the kids safe. Mm -hmm. And that's just you, what uh, this dad said, right? And you know, and his yeah. wife is right to say, yeah. no, you can't take you can't take this kid out on a road. 
because you've lost friends and I don't want to lose my daughter. That's a reasonable thing to say. And it's uh, tragic that it is reasonable to say. Mm-hmm. Is there signage in your community? Three foot law signs or cyclists may share the road or, or use the full lane, anything like that around your town or, or in the in the cities you visit in Utah? Um, I don't think I've ever seen uh, 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 three-foot signs. I see lots and lots of share-the-road signs on my favorite rides um, in the in the areas where where I ride up in the um, in the American Fork Canyon area, in you know, Timpanogos, Wasatch Mountains, and so forth. And because a lot of the places that I do love to ride, you know, which tend to be up toward um, ski resorts and so forth. I, I'm one of many, many cyclists, and the sheer prevalence of us makes it so that cars are at least aware that we are there. And so it's not like you they are being startled by a bike. And so that's a good thing, you know, the mass matters. Um, the The times I don't, that I've learned to absolutely not ride my bike in those areas is actually during color changing. Uh, when the leaves are changing and it's extremely beautiful because that actually equals greater distraction from driver's parts on the road. And every single year there are people who are hit by people who aren't texting, but are just looking left and right at the beautiful leaves, which is, you know, and I, I understand the, the urge to look around and take it in, but Hey, pull over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> take yep. pictures after you, you do that interesting you bring up the share of the road signs because that is an issue uh for the palace verdes estates city council they're being asked to approve specifically at least the advocates want them to approve the three-foot law sign and cyclists may use the full lane sign they don't want them to choose a share the road sign as part of this campaign for specific reasons and delia park who's been a regular in front of the council on this issue sized up why they want these two specific signs. My worst fear is not dying in a cycling accident. My worst fear is killing a cyclist as a driver. And so I can't imagine why anyone on this peninsula or in PV estates would be opposed to education and signage and allowing us to use the full road so that we are safe and that we get home to our children. Um, And so I really... I really ask that you listen to the recommendations from the Traffic and Safety Committee. And I really want to make the distinction that um, the important signage is that bicycles may use the full lane. I know that they were considering the signage of share the road in conjunction with the three feet uh, sign. And I think if you use those two signs in conjunction with each other, it will just complicate things. People will see that three foot sign next to a share the road and assume that the cyclist is supposed to be to the right and that the car is supposed to be three feet to the left of the cyclist. That's not the law. The law is that the cyclists may use the full lane. And why would someone oppose these signs? Well, no one who was against the sign showed up specifically to address the council the other night, but there have been rumblings on social media that some residents do not want the signs because they feel it will encourage more cyclists to use their roads. And one campaign was even started to restrict cyclists on one popular road and direct riders to alternate routes. Uh, Patrick, you're in, new, in a new community now, Santa Rosa, uh, a, a well-known biking community. How, yeah. Is it different there than, than the other places you have ridden? Oh, my God. I mean, it's one of the reasons I, I left. Uh, if we can just go back to PV for one second, you know, something I experienced in one of my meetings there was having uh, the the uh, barracks chief for the CHP look at me and say, share the road, uh, meaning that I was taking up too much of the road. So the hostility down there to cyclists uh, can almost not be overstated. And one of the things that I love about riding here is just how amazingly chill most people are. Do we have pinheads? Sure, of course we have pinheads. Um, but we have a, a pretty fair number of bike lanes on our roads around here. And then once I get out uh, West County and am on roads that are frequently pretty narrow, pretty tight, 90% of the drivers, I'd say, maybe even a higher percentage than that, are really very chill about uh, taking their time and finding an appropriate opportunity to pass you and leaving you plenty of room as they pass. Uh, three feet here. 
uh, isn't the, the normal behavior. It's more like four or five or six feet in general. Um, that and change, that's in the absence of a lot of reminders. What's yeah. what is the what is the reason for that? Why are you being given more space there than here? You know, it's just a friendlier, more chill atmosphere. That's all I can put it up to. Or maybe it's all the pot. Um, and it has nothing to do with education. <laughs> oh God, no. I mean, about efforts at, or, efforts at education here. No. Uh, the one thing I will say is that I'm not a supporter of Sharrows. You know, putting this big vinyl stripe or a couple of stripes on the road, it doesn't come with sufficient education. And I, I don't think people really understand it too well. Uh, the mm-hmm. closest thing I've gotten to buzzed lately was in a place where I was taking the lane and there was a Sharrow and someone plainly didn't understand that I'm permitted to take the full lane. So, you know, there, there are, um, there are certainly things that happen here. I mean, there was a, a, a hit and run, uh, crash, uh, out on Highway 1. This is out on the coast, which is to say, relative to Sonoma County, pretty much nowhere. Uh, and someone managed to hit a cyclist and leave him for dead. Um, so we're not without our incidents, but you know, there's not this recurring pattern of hostility in one little region. And that's one of the things I really value about, uh, value about my new community. You know, the Palace Verde Estates Council is going to be moving forward on this, and as they do, they will likely hear from both sides, but their real test as leaders will come down to whether they can filter out the hysteria and get to the heart of the matter here. That's not always easy, of course, in a small community like Palace Verdes Estates when the opposition might live right next door to a council member. Yeah, well, you know, still, I, I think it's fair to say that you know, this is, um, that's a, a heightened reaction in one place, you know, and is fortunately not typical uh, all over the country. Uh, we are facing, however, one truly national advocacy issue, uh, and it concerns the uh, Wilderness, Wilderness Act from 1964. Um, and if we can go into this a little bit, um, I'm pleased to say that the Sustainable Trails Coalition has actually uh, worked to get some uh, legislation introduced, uh, the Wilderness Areas Act, S.3205. Um, I'm pretty excited about this because what it means is that uh, in wilderness areas, um, it would revert uh, the uh, it would revert permission. Uh, or the granting of permission for bicycles in these wilderness uh, spaces uh, back to the local uh, local authorities, um, so the, the managers of the area. And I'm not saying this quite as well as it can be said. Uh, it gets a little technical. Um, but the point is that, you know, from uh, the way the, the legislation was originally written in 1964, it didn't mean to exclude bicycles from wilderness uh, areas. Um, and uh, basically, there was an interpretation in 1984 uh, that caused mountain bikes uh, to be eliminated from the place, uh, these places. And this new legislation uh, would allow you know, individual managers uh, to look at a situation and decide whether or not to grant bicycles access. And I know a lot of people think of this as being a strictly mountain bike issue. Um, but for everybody who likes to do adventure riding, you know, taking the road bike on fire roads and that sort of thing, this, this has big implications for, you know, those riders as well. Um, and it's something that I think we need to get behind big time. But there's been some question because of the bill's sponsors, uh, Mike Lee and Orrin Hatch, uh, of Utah, who combined have a, oh, it's a pretty terrible environmental record. Uh, they are, they are the, the Santa Claus of strip mining. Um, and uh, I'll tell you what their record is. You want to know what their record is? <laughs> yeah. They have a ranking from the conservation of voters of 10% on environmental issues. 10%. The average in the U.S. Senate is 45%. Yeah. So they are bad. the lowest of the low. Yeah on, yeah, this, on this issue. And this is an environmental issue. Go ahead, Patrick, sir. But, you know, it's one of those things where I, I don't, I mean, I'm curious to find out how this happened, you know, how it was that those guys decided to get behind this. Uh, and maybe it has something to do with the, uh, 
the incredible emphasis uh, tourism gets uh, within Utah, and maybe they saw the light because of that. But for whatever reason, they've helped uh, sponsor this uh, legislation. And um, well, we can ask Fatty that. Fatty is Utah. Is Utah? I don't want to call it desperate, but jonesing for more mountain bike tourism. Are they? Do you sense that that state is is actively opening its arms to mountain biking? Would like to see something done about access. There is a surprising amount of that kind of. Uh, I'm going to call it a dichotomy where you have otherwise extremely conservative right wing people promoting the mountain bike culture. Uh, I'm working on a fatty cast that will be about uh, the city of Draper, which is a fairly uh, conservative community that has purchased hundreds of acres for the express purpose of providing sustained mountain bike trails. Uh, The reason it turns out it's good business and good for the residents um essentially a lot of these guys they're they are for whatever uh is good financially and good for you know know, even in a short-term way for uh the residents so uh, i think that there is that aspect to it that's really terrific i mean you know you look at all the new trails being carved into ski areas uh the bike park that's uh just outside of park city um you know Utah deserves credit as a place that really believes cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this legislation uh, has the ability to reopen uh, or at least get consideration for reopening places that have been closed off um, to, uh, to cycling, uh, like up in Idaho uh, near Rebecca Rush. Um, so I, I hope that people will find a way to look past uh, the the two senators who introduced this, um, and not just view it as some uh, potential Trojan horse. Um, I just posted uh, a piece about this this morning, so I'm I'm really hopeful that you know we can get past that and have people examine this for what it really is, which uh, is a a great way uh, to gain access to wild spaces for bicycles. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, more than 115 conservation groups have sent a letter to Congress urging legislators to reject any effort to introduce machines, and a bike would be considered a machine in this case, to wilderness areas. Uh, You know, I think with Lee and Hatch on this thing, Patrick, uh, this is easy pickings for for environmental groups to to slap this one down. And I guess I'm a little disappointed in the STC that that they would pick these two guys. I understand, you know, for Utah, the implications... Um, and maybe why Hatch and Lee, they need to patch up their environmental image. Um, but this is the same party that w- wants to eliminate national parks, right? I mean, I, I don't see how they, they get the, they, meaning the STC, the sustainable trails coalition, uh, reaches their goal using these two men. It, well, it's, you know, one of the things we got to keep in mind is that, you know, if you, if you see, access for bicycles as a fundamentally uh, democratic, uh, you know, democratic leaning uh, idea, uh, we're never going to get anywhere. Uh, you know, we, we need bipartisan support uh, mm-hmm. to get such a measure uh, through the government. It won't make it uh, to the president's desk to be signed unless it enjoys support on both sides. And so to automatically reject something uh, just because it was sponsored by a Republican who has a dismal environmental record, I think uh, really dooms the future for us. I mean, you know, it, it, with that sort of mindset, we need uh, a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House. And we don't have those things. And so we need to go back to uh, old ways of governance, uh, which is to say finding bipartisan support. Hmm. Well, we uh, we wish the STC luck. We certainly, you know, I think the three of us would like to see more access. At least, at least the local control idea seems to make a, a lot of sense. That 
you know, individual land managers should be given the option to decide whether or not it's appropriate for a certain wilderness area to have mountain bike accessible trails. It wouldn't open up everything. We're not talking about the Pacific Crest Trail. We're not talking about mountain bikes, you know, rolling up uh, El Capitan and Yosemite. That's not what we're talking about here. I think they're, you know, talking about case-by-case issues where mountain bikes might be acceptable. Not only mountain bikes, but the maintenance equipment needed to get in there to, to repair and maintain trails for all users, which under the current Wilderness Act, I mean, there's certain things like a wheelbarrow was was on the do not list for a while on in certain no, it's, uh, wilderness no, areas. Currently, wheelbarrows are not allowed. And here's something for all of us to consider, you know, something that the Audubon Society and the Sierra Club, you know, don't want mentioned. And that is that the U.S. Forest Service uh, lacks both the funding and the fundamental infrastructure, that is, tools of destruction and warm bodies to maintain anything more than just 25% of the existing trail network. Trails that only hikers can get to uh, are falling into disrepair because hikers aren't going out far enough and the trails simply aren't being maintained. So we're going to lose access to some of these wild spaces, even as hikers, if we don't do something different. Okay. Coming up, a couple of new toys in our garage, both by companies who have led the charge in their respective areas. That's next on the Pace Line. It's not like you have to have billboards all over the city. These are things that will educate people coming into your city that you have safety in mind, that cyclists have rights. Paceline, fatty of fatcyclist.com, Patrick Brady of redkiteprayer.com. I'm Michael Houghton, your host. Uh, guys, a couple things in the garage this week. Uh, Garmin continues to stay uh, a step ahead, at least uh, when it comes to GPS and location devices. Its latest model, the H20, can live track your friends. You miss a group ride? No problem. Turn on the live tracking and find out where that group is. Chances are they're probably at a coffee shop anyhow. Garmin says it can track up to 50 riders within a 10-mile radius. There will be a two 820s coming out, the Edge 820 and the Edge Explore 820. The Edge does a little more on the ANT Plus side, allowing users to run a power meter. It also has the live Strava segment feature and, of course, a bigger price tag at 400 bucks. The Explorer's 350, both do heart rate. And they're about the size of the 520s. So track your friends now with your Garmin. What, these Garmin's are just going to do everything, right? You can be, be able to order a, a coffee as you're headed to the coffee shop. Uh, well, that's a wife. feature that people might actually like, you know, to have yeah. their favorite latte ready for them when they roll up. People might actually use that. You uh-huh. know, tracking my friends, I'm not a stalker. Stalking is inherently not a part of my makeup. <laughs> I am a stalker, but I use much more sophisticated equipment. See, I didn't want to know that about you. <laughs> First, no. Garmin's not the only company on the market, right, Patrick? I mean, there's there are the, you've, you've checked out some other products. Oh, uh, Wahoo! I yeah, know. the element. I love Wahoo. That is, I mean, well, you know, let's let's say that uh, Lazine has come out with a couple of really dynamite units, but my absolute favorite of all the various GPS units out there is the Wahoo Element. Um, it's just dynamite, and their stuff's reliable, unlike um, a certain Olaf, uh, Kansas-based manufacturer. You know, their stuff's really good and super yeah. easy to use. And arguably the best trainers going in the market right now, too. So good, yeah. good company as well. Just, it's hard to knock off Garmin at this point. They're, they seem to be the king. They are the polar of the, of the 2000s. I mean, they just seem to be on every bike everywhere. So a bit tough, but I think it's good to see the competition from the Wahoos and Lazines out there. Uh, think of the company that has struggled the most with the question of adding a 27.5 wheel size to its lineup. How about <laughs> Niner? <laughs> I mean, what's that company thinking, right? Here comes 27.5, this big wave of new wheel size, and then 27.5 plus. They're like, well, we're Niner, as in 29er. The company that put all its chips in the in the wagon wheel revolution is now coming out with two bikes in the 27.5 plus category. The Jet 9 and the Rip 9 are now part of this growing family. The 9 is still in their model name because both bikes will still come in a 29er version. 
but frames for both have been redesigned to fit this uh, new wheel size. They basically did what a lot of companies have been doing, uh, shorter chain stays with rear boost spacing, lower BB, longer front ends, slacker head tubes. The Jet 9 has 120 rear travel, 134 in the 29er version, 140 in the 27.5 plus. The Rip 9 is 150 rear, 164 in 29er, 170 in 27.5 plus. Both bikes come with, yay, threaded bottom brackets. Mm. The Rip is a non-Patrick bike. What? One by only. Well, I mean, if you put a 46 or, you know, something like that back there, I, you know, we can discuss it. <laughs> no front derailleur on the on the uh, Rip 9 from Niner. So those bikes coming out. 29er getting into the 27 and a half game. Hey, plus do is either, where it's at. Do either of you... Yeah, I know you're a big fan. <laughs> What's that, I, I was just going to ask, does, do either of you remember the old Steve Martin routine where he talks about his his stereo where he he got a oh stereo and then it wasn't yes. good enough and so i got the i got a quad system and he was all right then i and eventually he talks about getting a google phonic stereo with a moon rock needle um yes. <laughs> it's okay for my car uh i wouldn't want it in my house uh that's, <laughs> i feel like that's where we're headed I and mean, after you read off all of that my my class like yeah it sounds like a google phonics stereo with a moon rock needle um and, <laughs> uh, and actually the garmin sounded even more like a google phonics stereo with a moon rock <laughs> needle i'm i, I it, at some point our bikes um i mean we're, we're we're reaching the some sort of singularity where all changes are purely iterative and it's going to be really hard to come out with something that really gets me excited. That said, um, I don't think that a niner, uh, that uses 27 and a half inch wheels is any stranger than the pivot less, right? Which is, uh, which a bike, both a bike by pivot, which right. is a hardtail. It's a pivot less. It's a pivotless pivot. Oh, I get what you mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pivot. The the name pivot implied uh, mm -hmm. suspension. Yep. Well, you know, to be really fair, 27 plus works out to have almost exactly the same circumference as a 29er or diameter, depending on what mm -hmm. you want to measure. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a little less absurd. Um <laughs> Boy, we are splitting hairs. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Once someone says less absurd, I think we're we're done. <laughs> well, guys, the uh, political conventions are underway. We had kind of a little political discussion here in, in the episode of the Pace Line, vis-a-vis -vis the STC and the Wilderness Trails Act. Um, we really have uh, nothing to say about what's going on with the elephants and donkeys, but. What we do want to do is get into this whole idea of political discussions and the bike ride. And we have started getting comments from Paceliners on this. The question we have is, do you talk politics while with your friends on a group ride? Or is uh, the group ride, the ride itself, a political safe zone? No politics. No Democrats, no Republicans, no issues, no nada. I was on a ride, in fact, last week, and the subject of gun control came up. Got a little heated, hmm. um, but so just consider this a, a pace line poll, if you will. Go to redkitepair.com, leave a comment at the bottom of, of this or any show, and let us know how you handle political discussions and peddling with your friends during this, the political season, as we have a little run for the White House going on. Uh, before we go, before we sign off, we want to check in with uh, Fatty of FatCyclist.com, who I believe is on uh, part 12 of his uh, Rockwell Relay Report. I am. I'm on part 12. And actually, uh, part part 12 or part 13 will include a survey, <laughs> which I have never had a race report include before. But it should be interesting. Um, and I am also, and I'm excited about this one, I will be uh, posting for the Fatty Cast a terrific interview with Mr. Ted King. Oh, cool. Yeah. That'll be nice. Yeah. And that will be on, that will focus primarily on Kansas or what? It will be focusing on Untapped. It'll be focusing on Leadville. It'll be focusing on a number of things. We are not restricting ourselves to any topic of conversation. Okay. 
Patrick, lots going up on RKP. What is in the works with you? Well, um, given our conversation today, I'll just point people to my post, The Not-So-Trojan Horse, which concerns uh, the STC legislation. Uh, and I encourage people to stop by and read this. Um, the Sustainable Trails Coalition really needs our support right now. Mm-hmm. And provided uh, Patrick approves, I will be posting soon my report on my Going to the Sun Road ride. Approved. Um yeah, okay, it's approved. Okay. You haven't read it yet. You may you may hate it. Uh, I think what you'll approve is the pictures. I mean, the pictures really tell the story here. And it was a fun day uh, and an interesting kind of a lot of little twists and turns, not just on the descent, but it actually happened while I was riding the Going to the Sun Road in Glacier National Park. Uh, the pace line can be found on the pages of redkiteprayer.com, a good place to, to leave us a comment on the show, including our call for your political discussions. iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, the other places to find us, subscribe and rate the pace line on those sites, please. So for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Houghton. We will talk to you next time on the pace line. What does Castle A mean? 